I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. I am Frederick Wiseman. And you're <laughs> listening to Deep Cut. <laughs> Woo! On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss that director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, we have a very special treat for you today. Do we ever. We have spoken to Frederick Wiseman, <laughs> and we're just doing this intro after. <laughs> right after. But really excited to let you listen to this. First of all... Please remember to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you haven't yet, please take a moment now to rate and review us if you can on whatever podcast platform you use. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Facebook at Deep Cut Pod. And last but not least, check out our Discord server where you can chat with us directly about movies and anything else. We're going to keep this intro very short. It was a very enlightening interview. I think this was maybe the best moment of my year. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. It's been a whole year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, this was magical and incredible. And yeah, I can't wait for you to hear our conversation with Fred. If you are listening to this, you probably already know who Frederick Wiseman is. But just in case, he's the director of 46 films by our count, most of which are documentaries. The majority of those documentaries are insightful, incisive cross-sections of the people and policies of a focal institution or community, a hospital, a welfare office, a boxing gym in Austin, Texas. The titles of many of his documentaries are the exact names of these locations or public bodies. For example, his 1968 classic high school focuses on, well, a high school. And the directness of those titles both encapsulates an honest literalism in his filmic style in which shots and sequences play out uninterrupted and in real time from his fly-on-the-wall two- or three-person crew. And the titles also belie the vastness of Wiseman's anatomic scope and the observational editorial coherence of his ability to juxtapose the moments of peace, conflict, care, and mundanity that make up the everyday life of a community. If you haven't yet, you can check out our episodes on Wiseman's films. So our first being an episode on Titicut Follies, City Hall, and In Jackson Heights, and our most recently released review of A Couple. And we hope that this interview makes you want to watch more Wiseman films. Yes. Maybe the most important American filmmaker. Of all time! Yes! Facts. Period. <laughs> Without further ado, here is our conversation with Frederick Wiseman. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, I'm happy to do it. That's great. I'm glad you've seen the, some of the other films. We're really big fans, actually. And I think yeah. <laughs> I think Wilson's keeping it together, but he's a really huge fan. <laughs> some of the best films of all time have come from you. Well, that's lovely to hear. Thank you. So maybe to like just get the conversation going, um, let's talk about your newest film, A Couple, and what was your relationship with Sophia and Leo Tolstoy before doing this project and like maybe what drew you to this idea of making this film a couple? Well, no, I, I had read most of Tolstoy's fiction and Natalie and I had the idea of uh, when we both started to read Sophia's diaries. Now, I had never read a biography of uh, Tolstoy 
But uh, uh, Natalie was reading Sophia's diaries, and she suggested I read them, and I did. And then we talked about them and said, maybe there's a film in this. And so <clears throat> we read the diaries, and I also read the novels that she wrote, and we read his letters to her and basically studied them, uh, uh, in a sense, treated them like rushes mm. and selected... You know, I think our first version was over a hundred type pages. Wow! Uh, then we winnowed it down, and also we we didn't change the substance of it very much, but we changed the tense. Mm. Uh, a lot of it was written in the past tense, and we made it in the present tense, as if it were uh, an ongoing uh, relationship. That's incredible. I love how you described the original text as rushes. Mm. So would you say... Well, I mean, that, that's a bit demeaning to, to Tolstoy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I mean, but that, that was the method. I mean, mm -hmm. because we wanted to accurately reflect both of their, their thinking. I mean, Sophia's notebooks and diaries probably together are more than a thousand pages mm -hmm. wow. and you know his letters are voluminous even his letters to her uh are a couple hundred pages in making uh, the other films is is involves that that sort of compression mm -hmm. so i mean it's partially a joke when i say we treated him like rushes treated it <laughs> like rushes but in fact it's a, an analogy that is not off base I can imagine you sort of circling around themes and ideas whilst choosing passages that you wanted to have Natalie perform the same way you do in your documentaries. Right. What would you say would be like the main themes that you ended up whittling down to in a couple? Well, um, uh, the really basic nature of the relationship. Mm -hmm. He says in one of the letters that we quoted that she thinks that, you know, he can divide his time between the family and his writing, and his life is really his writing. Right. And and she wants, she both expresses it in her diary and, and, and the two novels that she wrote. The theme of the, both novels is the heroine wants an ordinary relationship with a man, uh, where he participates in bringing up the children and talks to her and... Uh, you know, generally is involved in daily life. That's a pretty normal wish, but that wasn't possible with somebody like Tolstoy. And hmm. despite his vast understanding of human nature, he either wasn't able or didn't want to change his way of life to accommodate her needs. That's not an unusual kind of conflict between a, an artist and his family life. And also the, 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 the issues that existed between them are very common issues, and maybe they've always been common issues in the life of a couple, but they're certainly very contemporary. I mean, what was going on between them is, you know, we both often heard uh, from our friends, uh, you know, similar kinds of uh, comments, criticisms, and complaints. Mm -hmm. Since this is a film called A Couple, but you have essentially one kind of perspective, which is Sophia's perspective. And I really kind of wonder, like, did you ever think about this being something where you would hear Leo's voice as well? Well, she, she quotes him a lot. 
in in the film. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. do hear his voice. Yeah. Because she quotes his letters. I at one point thought of ending the film over uh, having his voice appear mm. uh, over the credits with a particularly angry letter that he wrote. But, <laughs> I, uh, but I didn't think it was necessary because it didn't say anything that she hadn't already quoted earlier in the film. Mm. I was wondering about how you wrote with uh, Natalie Boutafou. So was the process like um, you just sat together and chose the letters that you wanted to, or um, was there sort of like a back yeah, and forth no, we, between? Well, a lot of, I mean, it was during the COVID, a lot of the time we sat together, a lot of the time we texted each other, but it was mainly we we got together. We both worked independently, and then we got together and fused our, our selection and... Uh, I structured the order of the sequences. Uh, so all of the sequencing was done prior to shooting, right? So was a lot of it found in the edit? No, no. I uh, In the editing, I pretty much followed the order of the written script. Mm. In that aspect, of it, it was the reverse of the documentary process. When I do a documentary, I don't work on the structure till I've edited all the sequences that are I might possibly use, hmm. but here we worked very hard on the script, and we had and we followed the script in the shooting, except for maybe you know cutaways in the garden and a few, few odds and ends, and then I edited. I didn't change the order of any of the sequences in the editing. I feel I have to work out a, a rationale in words hmm. as to why hmm. I'm making the cuts that I'm making. But that's not anything that I record. It's just, you know, sort of talking to myself at the time or uh, in, when we, we worked together on the script, Natalie and I talking together. But when I was, I did the editing on my own and uh, I, I had to, in the editing, continue that conversation. Yeah, the conversation never ends until you deliver the final film. No, the conversation never ends. That's right. Yeah. Puts it very well. I was wondering what your shoot-to-edit ratio for this film was and how big that difference is between this and your and your documentaries or your most oh, recent documentary work. Differences. Well, in the documentary, nothing is shot more than once because nothing is staged. <laughs> for a documentary, I... Sometimes I have 150 hours. For at Berkeley, I had 250. Oh, wow. Uh, but it's not unusual to have 150. Yeah. Uh, for this, I had 40 hours, and it's also mm-hmm. a much shorter film. Right. But those 40 hours weren't 40 hours of different sequence, each sequence being different. They were 40 hours of, uh, I've forgotten how many scenes there were in the film. Let's say there were. 33 scenes in the film uh-huh. each scene was shot between three and six different ways wow uh, depending on the length of the scene and depending what the what was going on because i i had to shoot it sometimes it was shot over again because uh there was some aspect of the performance that i wanted to, to, to try differently or it was shot at a different angle it was often uh, each scene was shot at different angles so that I could cut it because otherwise, you know, each sequence would be one shot. Right. And that's not the case. It's, it's very highly edited. 
there's sort of a editing pattern that happens in this movie that you use in your documentary sometimes where you slowly cut in from a wide shot to a medium shot into a close-up. So was there sort of like a designated close-up, medium, wide shot for all of the monologues that you and John Davey yes. sort of worked yes. out before shooting? No, well, I, I, I decided that ahead of time. That I, I, well, I knew that I would need it uh, because, uh, unless the sequence is so short that I w just wanted to shoot it as a wide, you know, just as a wide shot. But even then, even if I thought the sequence was going to be, well, even if there, there wasn't much dialogue and I knew the sequence would be short, I still shot it in different ways because I knew I, I didn't want to have to make the editorial decision in, in the press of the shooting. I want to like continue down this thread about working with John Davey because this is your 29th feature working together. So you've both crossed over from working in black and white to color, from analog to digital. I'm wondering how has your working relationship, at least in the documentary field, how has your working relationship changed over the years? Well, John and I, you know, I, I've worked with like four, four or five different camera, but most, a majority of the films have been shot with John. But I also did, I, I can't remember, ten or twelve films with Bill Brain, and in each case, with Bill and with John, we're we're very good friends. And so, you know, at night we watch rushes together when we we're not exhausted. But in the documentaries. Almost every night we watch rushes, sometimes at high speed. Oh. And we talk about the various shots and the possibilities or occasionally the missed opportunities. And so uh, in each case, you know, they knew what I wanted. And during the shooting, uh, I'm leading them with the mic because I didn't do the sound for either a couple or the last letter mm. because I, in each case I needed to concentrate on the acting. But for all the other films, I've always done the sound, and I've always led with the mic. How was that, relinquishing the mic? Well, I mean, I, I miss doing the sound, but on the other hand, I was quite busy uh, concentrating on performance, because that, that requires intense concentration. Hmm. And you have to make up your mind. You can't enter into a discussion you have to, you, I look at the monitor, I have to make up my mind whether I like the performance or there's something I want to change. And you have to do it more or less instantly. You know, during the shooting, everybody's waiting on you. Mm. To keep on this thread of sound, there are a number of sequences that take place at the edge of the Brittany coast with waves crashing in the background, and yet... The sound on Natalie is so crisp and clear, and we had to ask, how did you get the sound in those moments? Well, uh, uh, Jean-Paul Miguel, who did the sound, uh, is a very experienced sound man, and we, we had, as we had for many of the scenes, we had both a, a radio mic and uh, a boom. So, uh, and the sound you hear in the movie, particularly in those sequences, is a combination of uh, the boom and the radio mic. Wilson was right. He told me so. <laughs> in your documentary work, you often have invisible sound bridges that connect sequences and scenes, and it's a part of the juxtaposition that you have between scenes. Right. As you describe needing a rationale for the order that you put sequences in, 
How do you find a sound bridge? How do you know when you want to enter and leave a certain sequence? Oh, well, that's that's not really so difficult because I use sound bridges to avoid calling attention to the picture cuts. Mm. And to take a, a simple example, if one scene ends with a car going out of frame, I'll use the sound of the car going out of frame under the beginning of the next sequence and fade out the car sound under the following sequence. And the reverse is true. If a car at the beginning of a sequence, I'll end the previous sequence. I'll put, you know, anywhere from 80, 60 to 100 frames or in some cases 250 frames of the same sound under the sequences editing uh, that's ending mm. and fiddle with the fade in and fade out at the mix. I think we're, we're going to go a little bit back to a couple. Um, and I want to talk about a few specific scenes. Well, first of all, I, I want to commend you and Natalie for such a compelling performance at the center of this film. And I want to ask about that moment where she's battling the branches <laughs> and one, whether that was a scripted moment or something that like just happened while she was filming. Because I think that physical performance is so interesting and like a good reflection of how she feels on the inside. That was her improvisation uh, hmm. during the filming. Did you give a lot of direction in terms of her physical performance, how she carried herself as Sophia? Yes. I, 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 well, both, both things were true. I gave her a lot of direction, but I also gave her a lot of leeway. Mm. You know, uh, I made the judgment as I looked in the monitor mm. or, or subsequently uh, in the course of the editing when I had the choice of uh, uh, different nuances in the performance. Are you a narrative director that asks for a lot of takes or how many takes usually was it until you were like satisfied with the performance or with the, yeah, with the give and take? Well, yeah, I mean, I, but I mean, I, I don't think we did more than five or six takes. Well, I mean, I mean, I have to remember, I mean, I don't think we did more than five or six takes of any sequence, but within that context, uh, there were wide, uh, there were takes that were all wide shots, takes that were all medium shots, and takes that were all close-ups. But I, I think the most of any one take was three times. I mean, that, that was quite often, actually. I have a very specific question. So there are some sequences where Sophia is sitting on one side of the frame and looking slightly to the side of the lens, almost as if she's being interviewed by someone sitting next to the camera, as you might see in documentaries other than yours, that sort of near direct address, or in some cases here, direct address does not happen in your documentaries. They're more observational. No, but she was talking to Leo. That's what I was trying to convey. When she turns and looks in the camera, I think if you look at those sequences, you see, you, well, I hope you'll, you'll find that she's addressing Leo. Mm -hmm. And Leo, uh, in a sense, is in the position of the camera. Or the, cam or the camera's in the position of Leo. What do you hope the viewer gains by being put in Leo's shoes in that moment? Well, you're not being put in Leo's shoes. She's addressing Leo. Sometimes she's talking to herself in the movie, 
and sometimes she's talking to Leo. Mm-hmm. And when uh, most of the times when she's talking to Leo, she's looking directly in the camera. Mm-hmm. In the moments when she's looking slightly to the side of the lens, were you standing there in those moments making eye contact with Natalie, or was there someone else there? I'm curious no, where well, she was I, I looking. Was, yeah, I was standing there, or I just told her where to look. Like, I think with a couple, there's like this timeless quality to it because it is essentially like a series of, of monologues where she's either talk, like kind of expressing herself or talking in a way to Leo. But is there a sense that this is snippets of her mind or is it more like like a dreamlike sequence or is it because i think we had a mini debate on our conversation about whether this was something that was happening after leo's death or was this just something more abstract is there an idea that you had going in well i think it was something more contemporary okay what do you mean by that what i mean by that i mean the the tense of the movie is the present tense mm-hmm. so that and the telling position is that leo Leo's still alive and she's writing him letters and he's writing her letters. Mm. I think that's really interesting because I think when I was watching it, I wasn't sure how to place myself in terms of the position of the relationship. Of course, there is a certain kind of chronology to the letters, although we don't have a sense of the chronology. So it feels like this soup of Sophia's ideas and like her thoughts about the relationship. And so there is a sense that Leo is absent, but a very strong presence in in her, like her, her mind, at least when she's thinking about these things. But for me personally, there was a dreamlike quality to a lot of like what I was watching. Well, it, but you know, it, it's a, it's a problem of compression, mm. which is imposed by the form mm. and by the duration of the movie, because obviously not all those monologues took place on the same day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I but I didn't break up the movie in terms of. Uh, you know, day-night sequences, and, and I didn't say 30 days later or 60 days later. Uh, <laughs> and and a, a lot of it was her memory of events that already occurred, had already occurred, uh, which she is basically recounting to herself or re-recounting to Leo in the form of a letter to him. So, I mean, the, the movie takes place in in Sophia's mind yeah Mm. Uh, I want to ask about the transition shots of the garden Um, not only are they beautiful I I do feel like they're also telling a a story of their own or a story alongside Sophia's story I was wondering first of all how you went about filming those um, sequences of nature and also what you think they add to Sophia's and Leo's narrative. Well, the garden is a character in the film. The garden is the third character in the film. Hmm. Because what you see is some as- some aspects of the natural life of the garden. And while the garden is extremely beautiful, it's also a place of the natural life of the garden is very violent. Hmm. You know, the plants are dying, the animals are killing each other. When, when the duck dives in the pond, He's not taking a bath. (laughs) Uh, He's diving to catch a little frog or a a little fish and eat it. Uh, And and sometimes when the birds come by, the big birds come by, it's not in the movie, but they're after the ducks. I mean, the the natural life of of the garden is Darwinian. Hmm. And, you know, and there's meant to be some suggestion of that. 
and because there there's a horrendous struggle between Sophia and Leo, which exists among many couples, uh, so that there's a parallel between the life, to some extent, between the life of the garden and their relationship. I, I think that was very clear to me. I was wondering, so did you and John sort of take time outside of shooting with Natalie to get those shots? And was that sort of you guys going back into your documentary mode of filmmaking, but just finding uh, finding stuff to shoot? I, I spent a week on Belial, which is Allen, where the film was shot, uh, in April, about six weeks before, five weeks before we shot the movie. And I picked out a lot of locations. And then every morning, I would go down into the garden before the rest of the crew and pick out the locations where I wanted to shoot a particular sequence, both before and after we shot sequences. If I saw a particularly uh, brilliantly hued bush or some aspect of the life of the garden, we grabbed it then. <laughs> and in between shooting the sequences, where Natalie would have a little rest and We'd shoot some cutaways. And then uh, we, I think we shot for 14 days, and then Natalie left, and uh, John and I and uh, Jean-Paul spent three days in the garden just shooting cutaways, whatever really interested me, uh, because I knew, I knew that I needed them. I didn't know what order they would have. I didn't know which ones I'd select in the film, or I had some idea for a few of them. But I knew I needed a lot of them, so I'd have a choice in the editing room. Hmm. So I think yeah, ultimately I had about 250 shots of the garden, of the different plants and the flowers and the trees and the ponds and the ducks and the frogs and etc. So because I needed the shots for transition purposes and for thematic purposes. Hmm. A really important film to me and a film that I, I watched last year was your um, film Near Death. Mm -hmm. That was made over 30 years ago. And I, I, I'm sure it must have been a really, I don't know, life changing or harrowing experience just being there in the room and shooting those sequences with those patients. I was wondering, what are your thoughts? This is a big question. What are your thoughts and on life and death? Has has that changed since 30 years ago when you were making that film? Well, uh, that's a long, uh, you know, a long conversation. <laughs> I can tell you this, uh, that that working on Near Death cured my hypochondria for at least a couple of weeks. Wow. <laughs> With this kind of garden as kind of this idea of like this Darwinism and like the kind of midpoint between life and death kind of exists within the garden. Yes, of course, because the animals, the animals are all eating each other. Do you find that that theme, that that idea, this life and death thing, like, do you think that that permeates throughout your work? Like, in terms of, like, thinking about what humans do to each other? Like, are we just in the garden? <laughs> I, I do think so, yes. So our podcast is called Deep Cut. So we usually pick a director's most popular film uh, and cover that and also pick a personal deep cut of ours to bring to the table and to discuss on the podcast. So we were wondering what, if you had a, a personal deep cut of your filmography that you wanted more people to see out of all the films that you've made, what do you want them to think about in that movie? Oh gosh. I, I, I don't know how to answer that question because, you know, strangely enough, it's like asking you which of your children you like the best. Mm. <laughs> 
And I only have two children, but I've got a lot of movies. <laughs> <laughs> if I had 46 children, uh, imagine what the choice would be like. We won't tell them. We won't tell the movies. <laughs> right. Pick one for today. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's usually by the time I finished editing a movie, I don't see it again for a long time. Mm. Because at that point, I can recite the order of the shots and all the dialogue by heart because I've looked at it so much. And so I have no particular, I, I don't, I mean, I recently I, I had to go back and revisit because I'm color grading, I'm, I'm making DCPs of all the films that were shot on film. Oh, wow. So I, I've had, so there were 32 films that were shot on film, I think. Uh, and I had to go back and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still in that process of looking at those and, mm. and making DCPs. But uh, it's, it's a funny experience to go back and look at a film that I haven't looked at for. 40 or 50 years. Mm. Yeah. Were were any of them different than how you remembered them to be? No, they're not different than I remembered to them, but, you know, I, my reaction to them is somewhat different or, I, you know, I see, I see mistakes that I made or that sort of thing. Mm. Is there anything like revisiting them? Like, like, did it make you feel a certain kind of way about these subjects or even about the, the process of having made these no. such a long time ago? No, I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't change anything. It's just that, my reaction to some of the material may be different because, you know, 40, 50 years has passed. Mm. And, you know, I'm, and to some extent, I'm not the same person now that I was when I was 40. Are there any subjects that you kind of like have an idea that maybe you would have liked to revisit them no. from a different angle or like, no, no, no absolutely not. No, I mean, I, 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 I try, I made the best choice. I, I think you know, I, I stick with the choices I made at the time. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything, which is not to say I didn't make mistakes. <clears throat> but you know, I made the best choices I could make at the time, and I'm not. I have no interest in in changing them. But like, what about revisiting them, like in the current time, like like that institution or like a version of that institution? Would I like to go back? No, because there are too many subjects that. You know, there are about six million subjects that I haven't touched, mm. and I, I want to get to at least one or two of them. Mm. Is is there anything that's like your white whale, like that an institution that you really want to get into? Or the White House. The, oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that's my white whale, but I don't think uh, anybody's going to uh, throw me a line to get in. Mm. This could be the line, this podcast. Maybe yeah, someone in the, in the White House is listening <laughs> to us talk right now. My campaign starts here. <laughs> if someone gets in touch with you, I'll start tomorrow. All right. Great. Uh, we'll, keep, we'll keep in contact, Fred. This is going to be a thing. <laughs> Fred, I'm sort of interested in talking about the progression of your documentary subjects in, in most recent years from transitioning from, I guess, smaller scale institutions that sort of govern over people sort of like welfare or public housing into grander larger institutions that sort of objectively or or from from the outside people would say that they do public good like Berk at berkeley or ex libris or city hall do you think that was following your shift as a as a director as a filmmaker as a creator and your interests sort of moved on no no it's just that you know it's just the subjects subjects that i hadn't got around to earlier i mean i I don't, I don't think there's there's any great philosophical borderline between 
you know, City Hall and whatever it was, uh, 2018 or 19. And, and uh, I mean, it, 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 the real explanation for the, for the choice of subject matter is chance. And what interests me at, at, at the particular moment that I'm deciding to make a film, it's not any so-called, to use a big word, philosophical position. Uh, it's just that I like to do different subjects, and there are a lot of subjects I haven't covered. Uh, I mean, if I had thought of a city hall in 1969, I might have done it then, but I didn't think of it then. I mean, you can say, why didn't I think of it then? But, but there's no answer to that question. I don't know why I didn't think of it then. I didn't. I thought of, you know, doing a hospital or, or 1972 or three, doing a welfare center. So that's what interested me then. Uh, City Hall interested me 50 years later. But but there's no, uh, other than, than having uh, a wide range of subjects and cover as many so-called major institutions or my view of what constitutes a major institution, which not may not be shared by anybody else. Uh, it's just, it's just chance and, and chance operates in a variety of ways. I mean, combination of what I'm thinking about, the people I'm meeting, uh, how, some decision as to how I want to spend the next year, because it always takes about a year related, uh, it's related to my getting permission. There are all kinds of different elements, but I, I would say that the biggest element is chance. You know, I, 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 I've said this often, but I, it, it, I believe it's a proper analogy. I mean, I think that the model from, for what I do is Las Vegas. Mm. You know, you roll the dice and you take a chance on a subject matter. <laughs> wow. You know, I, I decide to roll the dice on a city hall or Monrovia, Indiana. I don't know. I mean, I, I can't tell you the reason. It just occurs to me. I have an idea. I think it's a good subject. I get permission and I do it. But there's no uh, wide-ranging philosophy, so to speak, behind the choice other than a subject that interests me at the time I'm ready to make another film. Much like you said, making your films is like going to Las Vegas. I would say that meeting you and doing this interview was sort of a, a throw of the dice. And <laughs> I can speak for all three of us to say that we're so lucky and honored to have talked to you today about a, a couple and your filmography and your body of work. Well, it's very nice. I appreciate, you know, I, uh, it's great to hear you guys are interested and have seen the films. That's terrific for me because... I work in isolation, so I don't, you know, I don't, except for uh, when I have a good interview, I don't really talk about them very much. So guys, we just talked to Mr. Frederick Wiseman. Friend Wiseman. How are we feeling? <laughs> wow. Woohoo, boy, guys. I just like ascended into like an astral, astral plane. Like I projected myself. I don't fucking know, guys. He earns his surname. Yeah. He is a wise man. I don't, I feel like I got... I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Yeah. And it was just it was just incredible to talk to him and see how his mind works yeah. and talk about this movie and his docs. Oh God. That was just like a dream come true. I learned that life is not so complicated. Yeah. Yeah. He just does things because he wants to do them. Like, I feel like there's a lot of life lessons here from from Fred. Yeah. It's just like there is. Like I think his bluntness is so like 
part of how he lives his life as well. Oh, definitely. Like, it's not just a personality thing. It's also just like the world is this. This is it. You know, this is what's in front of me. Yeah. You know, I'm going to do this. Mm. It's like an immediate quality to everything that Fred does and says. Mm. It's just immediate. Yeah. You know, it's like very plain, like plain in like a poetic way. It's just plain. He just puts it there. Yeah. I caught myself giggling when we asked like some highfalutin thematic question and he was just like, Nah, not really. Like, <laughs> it's just, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. But it was fascinating to talk about the process, I think, of creating this film. Totally. And, totally. Like, working with John Davey. Like, I, like, these were just things that I've been thinking about a lot. And it was just nice to, to hear him talk about it and just get insight a little bit more into, like, the world. Is there anything that you guys caught on to that was like really interesting from that conversation with him i don't know man i'm just still <laughs> processing the fact that i talked to him <laughs> he's in full just bells mode right now <laughs> i'm just belling right no thoughts <laughs> when i asked him about whether he wanted to revisit institutions i found that his answer was so interesting that he just was like no i like but he that's not true though he made high school too which i tried to say two times <laughs> and domestic violence too and domestic violence no, but too I, I think that's more of like extending his journey into those subjects mm, yeah like when i asked him would you want to revisit i was trying to talk about the the fact that obviously shit changes over 30 40 years and the fact that he doesn't think that he i mean obviously the idea that he wants to do other material makes sense yeah but also that it kind of means that a lot of what he does is he's so interested in that moment yes. and also in that institution and the institution almost doesn't change that much mm -hmm. between then and now maybe the context changes or like the material changes the people mm -hmm. change mm. but the institution maybe doesn't change like its mechanisms maybe don't change that much yeah and i think that kind of makes some sense like even though it's set in the 60s the 70s like mm -hmm. the institution is still the institution you know what i mean it's like based yeah. on his own current interests. That's it. Yeah. That's how he determines what films he makes. I like that it's like not a grand project. It's just, yeah. It's just, and it becomes a grand project by addition. It's like a craft. Yeah. Yeah. Like even with a couple, right? Like a couple is, I would say, like a massive turn in his filmography yeah. because it's one of only three narrative films but i think the way he talks about it it's basically just like any other film except when he's like oh this is a little bit different from when i do my docs it's also a product of chance right like it's also mm -hmm. yeah covid and like talking to to natalie yeah right like it's just a product of chance and like i think that's really like inspiring that he has lived this way for how many decades <laughs> that he's just been doing the next obvious thing which is something my therapist tells me <laughs> to do <laughs> just do the next obvious thing roll the dice ben <laughs> damn <laughs> go to vegas <laughs> yeah i did like that idea that he spoke about yeah There's something to it yeah. the wants versus the shoulds yeah the wants versus the shoulds just veering us back into talking about a couple <laughs> it's funny how I guess yeah it's funny how we sort of talked up the question you were gonna ask him Eli and he was just <laughs> he was like yeah, yeah I, was I was standing, standing there or there. I just told yeah. him to look <laughs> there's not yeah. some grand design from that I choice. directed the fucking movie Eli <laughs> 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 but this is one of the things about film analysis 
and engaging with art in general that's always so wrinkly is authorial intent and how much that matters Mm -hmm. to any particular viewer or audience, how much it should be taken into consideration. But it's just so fun to piece things together and to try to assemble meaning. That's that's what we do on the planet is try to make meaning of things, right? Yes. I like that it is both something that comes up as a question when you watch the movie, where is she looking? Is there some meaning behind it? And it's also just is what it is, which is a facet of the way the movie was shot that has no secret design. Right. It's both. Like, and we talked about it so much, but then when he said it, he was just like, yeah, she's talking to Leo. That's it. <laughs> That's it. But then, I think that's... Also, who's Leo? Tolstoy. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Bruh. My brain was like, oh, there must have been someone on set named Leo. Yeah, I, for a moment when I was like, who's Leo? And I, I had the same thought as well. I was like, he's not about somebody, it's like the script soup or like, I don't know. <laughs> but, or DiCaprio. Like the fact that he like was very direct in saying that this is contemporary is really interesting because I don't think that is necessarily apparent. Yeah. Mm. Right. And I think Eli's reading that, oh, this is after Leo is dead is a very valid and fair reading of the film. Yeah, I would say so. Thank you. Right, because he doesn't give you markers to understand what's going on. But the fact that for his perspective, it's contemporary. She's just speaking as it's happening. Yeah, she's just speaking her letters out loud. It's interesting that he just is firm that that's where it comes from, but it definitely doesn't necessarily translate that way. Yeah, but I think that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. That both literal and imagined quality Mm. or dreamy, to borrow your word, Mm. Ben, quality that we have discussed in our last Mm. episode about a couple. What do you think of his white whale? Oh, Do we need to start a petition? I feel like we got to get Joe Biden on the phone. Joe Biden. (laughs) Let this man film in the White House. Uh, That would be fascinating. But I I understand. It would. I, I, I bet he has probably tried a few times. I'm sure. And that's why it's his white whale. Yeah. I would love to see that. Especially in our times now. Like, I think that would be so interesting. Yes. To me, one of the magical qualities of his movies is showing me a place where I have not thought of, oh man, what happens behind closed doors here? Mm. So I like when he Mm -hmm. takes something small and really zooms in anatomically. Mm. But I don't know if I need to see his white house i would see i would be are you there. doubting the wise man right now? <laughs> i mean i would watch it gladly <laughs> it's gonna be about gardeners in the white house okay that sounds yeah. good that, like Fred will you find. know like even if he makes a film about the white house you know he'll spend like at least 20 minutes on the gardens yeah or i tell you half the film will not be about the president <laughs> Yeah, he follows wherever his his camera takes him. If it's like boring, like logistical, like who's going to clean meetings, I'm sure he'll be there. The security checkpoint. Exactly. That part is more interesting. I don't doubt that he will fully explore the subject as it should be. Because mm-hmm. like even with something like Ex Libris, you just think of like, I guess, one New York Public Library branch. But no, of course, he went to 
all the branches that you could go to in uh, in the New York Public Library <laughs> and and shot there. So he, he I, went to I, four. Okay, <laughs> or six out of like the ninety something. <laughs> Never mind. He didn't That's go to all of them. But I think he <laughs> strives to achieve a holistic view of wherever yeah. he chooses to. And yeah, the, I don't even care about wherever he chooses to go to. Yeah, it's true. Like I just want the film. Like I, I want. <laughs> I want to live in it. Show me what you see, friend. <laughs> yeah we we might have talked about this on our first episode on wiseman but he has generated this really useful framework and vernacular for sociological depiction of an institution on film and I hope that his method lives on beyond mm. him and other filmmakers try to take up that type of filmmaking and the language that he's developed for looking at a community is useful and cogent. I want it to stick around. Doesn't it make you want to just like go to something on the corner of your street and film there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that's like every time I watch totally. or like listen about Fred, I'm like, yeah, maybe I should just go there like with my phone or something. <laughs> just start like, shooting. <laughs> bus stop, convenience store. You know what I mean? Like yeah. just like random locations. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we got to go back, guys. I think we got to go back, revisit some Wiseman. It's time to go talk back. Talk about them. I'm down. I Yeah, Seriously. I feel inspired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you again to Erica Hill, the office manager at Zipra Films, for her tremendous and generous help in getting us screeners of a couple and connecting us with Fred to have our conversation really means so much to us. Thank you. for fulfilling Wilson's dream. (laughs) Thank you, Erica. Like I bow down to you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review us because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. I'm Fred. <laughs> we edited that. <laughs> Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. <laughs> <laughs>